You're now tuned in to the Desire to Trade podcast, a show where we bring you the best figures of the trading world and teach you how you can become a successful trader. This is your host, Etienne Kret. What's up, traders? Kati founder of Desire to Trade, and welcome to episode 31 of the Desire to Trade podcast. Now, in this episode, I've been interviewing Gil Morales and Christian Kesher. Now, those three guys are behind the website virtueofselfishinvesting.com. They're really great because they've been co-authors of a few books and they've written a couple of books. Now, the discussion we've had today is really, really interesting simply because those three guys have an amazing lifestyle. Christian is traveling around the world. Gil is trying to do the same, <laughs> which he'll do pretty soon, I suppose. And they just have this great philosophy about trading and about life. They've been involved in the O'Neill Principle a couple of years ago. And one of the books I noticed from them is called Trade Like an O'Neill Disciple. How we made 18,000%, 18,000% in the stock market. So that's really interesting. We'll have a great discussion about this. And I want to welcome them. How are you doing, guys? Doing great. How are you doing, Etienne? Very good, very good. Thank you. What about you, uh, Christian? Yeah, all good. All good over here. Cool. Um, America right now as we're even skating in the Southern Tech Hemisphere for the past year. So the adventure continues. Cool. So what's going on these days? Uh, well, well, basically the two of us are, we, we trade our own money. So we're basically traders and we run our own website. And that's basically what we're doing. We write books about the stock market. So, you know, we're basically pure traders uh, with a lot of experience, and we spend uh, the rest of our time trying to educate others uh, through our website and through the books uh, that we have written. And that's essentially what we do. So it's a very simple life in that regard. It's a nice, uh, nice ability to, um, as long as I have a fast broadband, I can be anywhere on the planet and to do effectively you know, what I do, which is trade and write and do my research studies. Um, and I, I, I would say that traveling actually enhances those activities because... Uh, I often get a lot of good ideas uh, just from changing my venues. Mm, interesting. So, uh, Gil, go ahead and tell us how you started to trade. Well, I actually started out uh, as a stockbroker with Merrill Lynch in Beverly Hills way back in 1991. And at the time, I just needed a job. I was just looking for a job, and it looked like a sales job where you can make a lot of money. And that's basically what it was. But I started to gravitate towards um, uh, running stock portfolios and attracting clients who wanted to trade stocks. And eventually, I was trading my own account and doing pretty well. And Bill, and, and actually, one of my clients was Bill O'Neill's first boss in the business at Hayden Stone, a gentleman by the name of Harry Wayne. And Harry was a broker there. And uh, then he retired and he opened an account with me. And so he, when he uh, had his account with me, he showed Bill O'Neill his statements, and Bill saw how well he was doing, and so Bill hired me in 1997. He recruited me to come to his firm to uh, take over as head of the Institutional Services Advisory Group, and also to manage the internal money of the company. So we used to run the, um, the money that came from the various businesses, like Investors Business Daily and uh, the other businesses. I think there were seven companies altogether. And so the cash flow from those businesses, we would run and manage in the market. And uh, we ran it up to close to a billion. Chris also was involved in that. And that's where I met Chris, was at O'Neill. And he worked with me on the institutional side of the business as a research analyst. He was probably our, 
what I like to consider our big gun analyst, uh, and I always would have him with me when I was going out to see the clients. So uh, I retired from there, from O'Neill in 2005, and then have since uh, you know tried to run some funds and come to the realization that I'm better off managing my own money, which is far more profitable and not so difficult, given the squeamish nature of most clients, uh, and that's what I'm doing today. So uh been 25, uh, almost 26 years since I started, so I have a lot of experience, and uh, I enjoy just trading and uh, and writing like Chris was saying. You know, all we need is a uh, fast internet connection, and we can be anywhere from the beach, uh, you know, in uh, South Africa to uh, Australia to Hawaii, uh, London, wherever we want to be. So it, it's a very very nice way to uh, to uh, run a business, I think. Cool. So what are some places you went to and where are you right now? Uh, Chris is in, where are you, Chris? You're in Buenos Aires right now, aren't you? I'm in Argentina, Buenos Aires. I came from Rio for Carnival. Um, and then we're going to head to Auckland, New Zealand uh, next month. And then uh, we're going to be uh, in Europe for the summer and maybe longer. So, yeah, the world is pretty much our, um, our backyard. And uh, we're nomads. Uh, uh, doing this interplanetary travel, um, and you know we don't have any particular uh, strict uh, destinations. Um, we just kind of go where uh, where divine spirit, I guess, uh, moves us to go. And so it's a very free form of uh, life. And uh, I remember they did an article um, about uh, the way Bill and I set up our company a few years ago. It was a it, when we were running a hedge fund, and and they they were very uh, stricken by how. We're geographically dispersed. We have a guy in uh, uh, we have a guy in China. We had you know we have guys in different parts of, of the planet that work for us. Um, it's a very small operation we're running here, but it's geographically dispersed. And again, no one needs to be coming into an office. We don't need to pay. The overhead is incredibly low because we don't have to have an office, and everyone can work from the comfort of their home. And it's kind of the new paradigm of uh, how hedge funds and I think a lot of business can, businesses can operate. And uh, that just fast forward back to present now. Um, it feels like you know we've taken we've taken that lifestyle um, into our own hands, and we're just that's what we're doing. We're living it. Um, where you know we're not tied down anywhere. We don't need office space, and uh, it's a very lean and efficient way of um, running your life. And uh, you know they they always talk about how clutter is uh, is not a good thing to have. You know you want to keep your workspace in a very zen, clean, pure state. Um, I remember O'Neill, um, Bill was uh, was always having one screen, not six screens, and there were very big uh, fonts on his screens, and his desk was very sparse, um, and that was a constant with him. He said he always wanted to keep everything very clean, you know, his his surroundings clean. And uh, I, I respect that. I agree with it. It works for me. Um, I know Gil's very similar in that way. And uh, um, I, I, not just uh, your workspace, but your life in general. I think simplify, simplifying is very key. Uh, the more you can simplify, uh, I think Einstein said, uh, keep it uh, as simple as possible, but no, but no simpler. So um, I, I abide by that. And really, in, in, it, it helps me in terms of everything I do in my life, not just trading, but... Uh, it is a reflection, I think, of everything, and, and, and of course, uh, the most important thing, and that would be the bonds that you create with other people, the friends and family that that move along with you in life. It's hmm. interesting. I guess I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of my listeners are are willing to get that lifestyle. They want to get that as soon as possible. So uh, it's good to have an example. Yeah, awesome. So 
I guess right now you guys are following O'Neill's principle, right? When you're trading. Not necessarily. We've we've uh, we were we were trained and mentored by O'Neill, but what we like to say is that our our philosophy follows more what we call the OWL O W L, which stands for O'Neill, Wyckoff, and Livermore. So Wyckoff is Richard D. Wyckoff, if you're familiar with him. Uh, and also Jesse Livermore, who O'Neill took a lot of things from. So, well, we were, uh, trained by Bill O'Neill and a lot of our thinking is rooted in his, uh, you know, his principles are also rooted in the principles of Livermore, Jesse Livermore and Richard D. Wyckoff. And then we've taken and built upon that ourselves. So I would say today, you know, I'm not so much an O'Neill disciple as I am a disciple of the owl, as we like to say it. I, I need to have a t-shirt made of that with a big owl on it, but, uh, and that says disciple of the owl, you know, that would, be, but, um, but that, that's how I sort of see it because our, our methods, and I think this goes for Chris too, and I'll, and I'll let him, you know, answer this on his own as soon as I'm done going on and on. But, uh, to me, I'm more, uh, like I said, an owl disciple and I'm constantly watching how the market works and trying to adapt to the market. I think that we're not in the same environment we were, uh, when O'Neill came up with his method, the canceling method, which is, you know, Five quarters of earnings growth is up 20%, sales growth up 20%, return on equity, and 18% higher, all this other stuff. Because I think today there's an information, uh, glut, you know, in the sense that everybody has access to the internet. And on the internet, you can find all the data you need. You know, when O'Neill started his chart books, those were, uh, the first of their kind. And if you had that, you actually had an edge because not many people had those chart books. And now today, everybody has charts and everybody has access to data. So what what you see in terms of, you know, the past five quarters up 20% in earnings, everybody knows that already. That's old news. And so the market is more forward-looking. And I think that people, uh, investors and traders, have to be more creative in trying to find an edge. And I think, you know, that there are different ways of doing it. I think, like, for example, with Chris's work, the pocket pivot buy point is an early buy point. And that gives you an edge, a big edge, over buying the breakout to new highs, which is an O'Neill method. But by the time a stock breaks out to new highs, everybody has charts, everybody sees it. So, you know, I think overall we've taken it to a, a new level and we will continue to adapt to the markets as they change and as they evolve. Because it's not the same, uh, say, secular bull market in the United States, at least, that we saw uh, begin after World War II. I think it's changed. And the drivers of the market are, are much different because uh, the uh, <clears throat> baby boomers uh, are no longer saving for retirement. The millennials uh, are are sort of disenchanted with the stock market. They don't trust the financial markets because they what have they, what they've seen since 2000. And so I think the demographics have changed, and so the market has changed. You have to adapt to it. Chris, would you what, what would you add to that? Yeah, I would, I would say that, uh, well, the only thing that doesn't change is change. And therefore, uh, black boxes are failures from the get-go because uh, if they don't change the markets, uh, they're never going to keep up. And, uh, you know, if you have the 80s and the 90s where the canceling system worked great, um, hats off to O'Neill. Uh, you know, the, I, I started, um, well, I got interested in, in this whole trading, trading business idea um, back when I was collecting stamps and coins, and that was in the, uh, the inflationary 70s, uh, and stamps are doing very well, and you can buy them at face value and watch them double in price if you bought the right one. And uh, uh, so it was very low-risk trade back then, and, um, you know, I was a little kid, but I was still speculating, and I would, you know, chart the prices of stamps and 
figure out which uh, which ones are more most likely to go up in value, and I was pretty good at it. Um, and uh, then uh, I, I eventually started tracking the price of spot metals, gold and silver. And of course, you know, 1979, 1980, those things went crazy. So I was very intrigued as a, as a little kid about, you know, what makes these prices do what they do. Um, and, and then from there, uh, I, I uh, flash forward a number of years, um, I read O'Neill's book in, uh, it was 1989, uh, how to make money in stocks, and I couldn't make heads head or tails out of it. And it took me about um, several months to a year of processing the information um, and uh, starting to subscribe to daily graphs and looking at lots of charts until my brain it clicked on with my brain. Okay, this is what canceling is. This is what charting is. This is how base base breakouts work. And it made a big difference to my trading, which was really pretty pathetic and non-existent, um, and 1991 was my first very successful year, and I credit Daily Graphs and O'Neill's book to uh, putting me on the right path. Um, and then, uh, of course, we all know what happened uh, after 2000, you know, we had an great, incredible run-up, um, and uh, then after 2000, we had the big bear market, NASDAQ lost 78%, peaked the trough over three years, uh, and then the markets that were never really quite the same uh, since 2004. Uh, in fact, 2005, by then, I was getting very war war torn because uh, base breakouts just weren't working the way they were supposed to work uh, in the 80s and 90s. So that's where uh, the pocket pivot concept came to be, because uh, out of my own frustration um, of trying to figure out early entry buy points, and then lo and behold, I I back tested it through several market cycles and couldn't believe how uh, how effective they were working, not just in compressed markets like 2004, 2005, but also in great markets like the 1990s, um, and in fact, I think uh, you know they say that the saying is, "What doesn't kill you, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger." Um, and I think that's that holds very true with market uh, with tough markets. Um, I mean, just this last year, we've had by many media accounts uh, the toughest year in 78 years, just because it was a go nowhere, trendless environment, and because of that. Um, it was very frustrating to try to time these kinds of markets. You can't really time a trendless market. And so that's where um, uh, a, new, a new timing strategy of mine uh, came, came to be. Uh, that was a work in progress for a number of years, but it really took shape late last year. Uh, I call it the fixed volatility model. It's, it's available on our website, selfishinvesting.com. And um, it, what it does is it's a, basically it's an early entry version of the market direction model. So it's much faster in terms of, in terms of its sensitivity uh, to market uh, gyrations. And uh, so far, I'm, I'm happy with the performance. Um, people will see on the table that it doesn't reflect intraday profit taking, but the model has had a number of 15% or more profitable uh, intraday periods, at which time we advise members, you know, take some profits off the table here because if you get 15% in a day or less, that's pretty damn good, especially in these kinds of markets. Um, that's happened a number of times since we launched the model um, late last year. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it all goes to, all that to be said, uh, tough times are great times. It can be great times because that's when a lot of investors start to throw in the towel because they've been losing money. They're sitting in a drawdown. Maybe they're, they're abandoning their strategy altogether. But um, those are the times where I think either your strategy can be refined or you come up with an entirely new idea that can be something really out of the box that can be uh, a godsend and uh, end up saving the day for your account. Um, I mean, 2004, 2005, it wasn't exactly, there's never been close calls of saving the day, but I would say that 
my uh, patience was really thin by 2005 because it was very tough getting knocked around and seeing base breakouts continue to fail again and again. So um, I tell the listeners out there, you know, we've all had our, our moments of extreme frustration, but see that as a gift because it really can be. And I, I mean, if it weren't for those very frustrating times like 2004, 2005, or last year, um, I wouldn't have come up with these ideas that, uh, that well, the pocket pivot and the viable capital ideas um, still uh, are useful to, you know, in today's markets. Um, although uh, I would say that it's extremely difficult to make much headway in a year like 2015. And uh, we've all, always advised members, you know, when you've got quick profits in a, in a position, take it off the table and keep your stops extra tight also in this kind of environment. And, and that goes both for the long long side or the short side, um, as we always, uh, uh, we never hesitate to advise uh, our members of that. And of course, uh, we, we, we've discussed this ad nauseum in our books as well, because uh, taking your profits um, in these kinds of environments means that you'll take baby steps, but uh, you know, the, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And if you keep taking the right baby steps, you can be up quite a, quite a heavy sum, uh, even in challenging markets. And Gil's actually a testament to that in 2014, and he was up over 100% in his personal account. 2014 was not an easy year, as I think we can all agree. No, I'm def I definitely agree with the idea of taking profit like along the way. And I'm pretty glad you mentioned about about the fact that markets are changing because I feel like a lot of traders stay like sticking to one strategy and they don't want to move it. They don't, they don't want to evolve. So how did you start to think about the new way to trade? Like how did you came up with this new idea to, to trade? I don't know. I mean, maybe a million charts by that point. Um, you know, I've been, I've been heavily focused on markets basically since 1990. Um, and I, I started to started to think, well, you know, uh, base breakouts, it's you buying too late. And so it's kind of a logical process of saying, wait, if I buy earlier, then I don't give back that 5% or 6%. You know, if I buy 5 or 6% earlier, then I, I break even on the trade. And then in, in, a, in a sense, if I get one good trade out of 10, uh, that that's great. That, that, that's my profit. And the other nine trades are more or less break even trades. Um, so I started to really analyze these charts and looking at examining the basing process um, to see if there was any clue. And, uh, you know, it, it took a number of months, but eventually I hit on this pocket pivot concept where um, and I devised rules based on uh, going back over a number of market cycles to see what worked. And uh, same with the Bible Gappa. Um, the Bible Gappa concept, it actually, you know, these ideas sometimes come out of thin air. In the pocket pivot concept, it came out of just a lot of rigorous uh, and vigorous analysis of charts. But pop, the Bible Gappa, uh, just so, someone, someone said, uh, you know, um, when a stock gaps up, that's, it, it behaves differently than when it gaps down. It, it was that simple statement. You know, it's obvious. Yeah, of course, a stock that gaps up behaves differently than a stock that gaps down. But that made me wonder, hey, wait a minute, why don't I gap, gather together hundreds or thousands, it was, yeah, actually over the period of months, it was thousands of gap-up charts and seeing if there's any commonalities. And what I concluded was, uh, like with base breakouts, you have to buy quality uh, gap-ups. In other words, stocks that have a good price-volume action leading to the gap-up and also have strong fundamentals. So, you know, we're always focused. Um, especially in the 90s, we're always saying, you know, buy, buy the leading stocks and the leading industry groups. And leading meaning on a technical and fundamental level. Um, 
and you know, your odds are that much greater um, when you when you really are that uh, discriminating on what you're putting in your portfolio. Uh, in the 90s, of course, there were tons of these stocks. There were great stocks that had both that, that measured up, and then um, you know in the last few years there have been so few uh, that have those qualities, um, and you still have to those stick to your guns and. Focus, try to focus on, you know, I know a lot of members like the thinner names, and sometimes they can really go, you know, in a matter of days, but uh, I think over time, um, and O'Neill was a big uh, stouch uh, defender of this principle, buy quality, always stick with quality, um, and yeah, you might not get that 15% uh, pop, maybe it moves slower, but over time, uh, that quality is also much less likely to gap down, or it's less likely to, you know, create volatility in your portfolio, so you're your risk actually is is diminished greatly by sticking to quality names, um, as opposed to trying to make it all you know in a month. Uh, and I know that's a big temptation with traders uh, to want to buy the thinner names that move around, you know, that have that have the higher volatility patterns. But uh, uh, you know, O'Neill is a legend all, all to himself, you know, and he he the way he's trade, traded consistently over, over the decades is to focus on quality and you know it's done him extraordinarily well. Um, so you know that I would I guess I would say that to you know try to try to uh, suppress the temptation to buy junk. Um, uh, and as far as uh, shorting, uh, same thing goes. You know we we're very selective in the short sales setup reports we send to members. Uh, they're not frequent, uh, but we're trying to pick the best names out there, the ones with the best setups and uh, the worst fundamentals. You know, you just turn the table on them. Um, a lot of these names are prior leaders, you know, like the Apples of the world or Tesla. You know, these are great names we wrote articles on uh, when we saw buy points in these stocks, and they did, they did very well. Um, you, can, you, know, you can just Google our names for these articles. And then we did the reverse. We also talked about the flip side, you know, when Apple talked, uh, you know, we got a lot of hate mail for saying that Apple has talked, uh, but we called that one pretty close as well. Um, you know, so anyone who wanted to start looking at Apple as a potential short uh, potentially did very well, and you know, it's Tesla the same thing. Um, so you know, all it goes to say is try to focus on just a few names that measure up in all regards on a fundamental technical level. Um, and you're putting the odds much more in your favor, and you're also doing your account a favor from uh, from uh, reducing the volatility uh, and profit loss fluctuations. Hmm, it's interesting. I just want to make a small note here because I, I know a lot of my audience is, is trading forex or currencies right now, but I think a lot of, a lot of time people try to diversify too much. They try to go with too many different names, but I think if you just narrow it, as you said, on quality, so like things that work best, you're much better in the in the end. So. It's really about selecting quality and not going to anything you can try. So yeah, I like that. Now, one of the books that uh, really caught my eyes, I would say, on, on you guys is the book Trade Like an Illegal Disciple, how we made 18,000% in the stock market. So tell us about that. Maybe, uh, Gil, can you tell us about how that book came to be? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's mostly a great uh, title that the publisher liked. Because, <laughs> okay. you know, once you start bragging about your performance, you know what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. But Chris and I were both very successful uh, in the stock market during the 1990s. I think he, from like, what was it, 95 till 2000-something, he made 18,000%. From, from 1998 to 2004, I made something like 11,000%. Okay. So, you know, obviously the publisher thought that 18,000% was better than 11,000%, so they used that in the title. But 
I would say that we also have to give credit to the market. You know, the way I look at the market, it's like a big, it's like an ocean, you know, and, and if there's a good wave to ride, you're like a surfer and you, and you ride, you have small waves, then you ride the small waves as best you can. If that's all the market is giving you. If you have a big wave, then you try to ride it as best as you can. And I think the market had a big wave throughout most of the 1990s and it turned into a tsunami in 1999. And if you look at a chart of the NASDAQ from 1990 to 1999 or 2000, the end of the decade, you can see it's a big parabolic move. You know, it's just a huge parabola to the upside, and it, it spikes in, uh, into March of 2000. So I think we were both also very fortunate to work uh, at O'Neill and to have the tools to capitalize on the parabolic market of the 1990s. So it's been harder since then, but certainly not a problem that we can't solve, but you know, when you see that on the title of a book, yeah, it looks great, but it's it's uh, it's the past, and it's not really relevant to what we're doing today anymore. But it does show that when you do have the right tools and the right methods, the tra right trading strategy, and you have the right markets, the opportunity is huge. You know, so I know that the markets are difficult today, and maybe you don't have the same type of opportunity that you did uh, in the 1990s. You know, we have we haven't had a dot com bubble, but I think you will. I, hopefully, within my lifetime, I'll see another big bull market like the 1990s, uh, maybe once or twice more. And I think people need to be uh, aware and participating in the markets if they expect to be there when that happens. You know, it's a lot of people become discouraged; they don't want to be involved in the market because they're not making any progress. But I would say, okay, it's it's okay to stay in cash or not to trade so much because you're having difficulty. But you want to keep your head in the game. You want to be aware of what's going on in the markets because there will come another huge, huge opportunity where you, the opportunity to make, you know, 11,000, 18,000 percent is going to be there. So you definitely want to be there. And I think that's the dream. I know, like Chris likes to say, uh, sometimes the opportunity in the stock market, sometimes the opportunity of a lifetime can come every two weeks. And in the 1990s, that was definitely the case, you know, in the new millennium after year 2000, there have been some big winning stocks, but not like there was in the 90s. But, you know, there will be big opportunities, and I think people should remain optimistic and keep their head in the game so that they can be there when it happens. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your uh, your life as a trader. So what does it look like? You want to take that first, Chris? Yeah, sure. Um, you, can, you, can go, you can describe the glamorous lifestyle you have versus the, the more the, the more mundane lifestyle I have. So I'll, I'll let you go first. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mentioned about, you know, the hedge fund article about, you know, when we were running, running a hedge fund, how we did need office space and where we ran it very leanly. And it, it, was, it was great because, you know, you keep your life very simple. Um, and, uh, you know, your focus, therefore, is very... Um, pronounced and you could almost call it an insane focus in what you love doing, which is trading stocks. And uh, in being able to uh, be geographically anywhere, you know, as long as you have a fast uh, broadband connection, you know, you can trade from anywhere in the world. Um, and uh, you know, we love to write. I love I love researching the markets. I can do any of that um, from any broadband connection. So uh, it's nice to be able to um, be. Uh, inter interplanetary, basically, and um, you know, I've been—I say I've been country hopping since 2003. Um, 
which is uh, true in, in terms of, you know, that's when I um, moved out of the U.S. to start a company in Switzerland. But uh, um, there's been moments where, you know, I stay, stayed a lot. I stayed, spent a number of years in London, a number of years in Switzerland, etc., Cape Town as well. Um, but it's nice that those are all non-business related uh, journeys. They're all just because I wanted to be there. And then you make friends and then it becomes kind of like a second home, a third home, a fourth home. And so it's, it's nice to be able to travel because traveling also frees the mind. And I get a lot of my best ideas when I am traveling. Um, and it could be market related. It could be uh, spiritual related. It could be anything really. So um, I, I can see why a lot of people out there, uh, you know, that that is kind of their their thing. If they could, they would love to take off and travel and uh, make a full time thing of it. Um, you know, travel journalists often are romanticized because that's their job is traveling and, and reporting on it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would say if you can do it, uh, you manage it, or at least part of the time, then go for it because uh, it really opens your mind up to you know how other cultures are, and you create all these different bonds from you know all, all walks of life, and uh, you know gives you a much more balanced perspective as opposed to what most people sadly you know unfortunately don't have the means, and so you know maybe they get married too early, maybe they're stuck uh, for family reasons, whatever. Um, you know, my heart goes out to them. But they're, you know, they are fixed in a location and they, you know, they have a lot of people, you know, their family, their kids to answer to. So they, that's what they have to do. And, you know, of course, some people love it. It's fantastic. Um, and that's great, you know, but some people feel like they're trapped in prisons, you know, and it's, or it's, they're the prison of their own making. And, you know, um, if you're, if you're not happy with where your circumstances, then you really should uh, figure out a way uh, that, you know, you can make changes, maybe not this year, but maybe in time, you know, any, anything's possible. Um, and you're never stuck, you know, you're never stuck in the same thing. Because like I said, at the beginning of the interview, the only thing that doesn't change is change. Um, and certainly the world is changing at a furious pace these days uh, and only getting, uh, only getting faster in its change, changing process. So, uh, yeah, basically, uh, I always say, you know, uh, surf the tsunamis as, you know, they will come. And sometimes the tsunamis are great opportunities, uh, for great change. What about, yeah. uh, I can, I can contrast, uh, my lifestyle with Chris's when, when Chris talks about the freedom of, of the internet that the, the, well, the freedom that the internet allows him in being able to travel all over the world, what it does, it allows me the freedom to be, uh, upstairs in my office or down in the backyard or out at the beach around my house because I have two teen teenage children in school that uh, I have to uh, stay in one place for. Of course, when we go on vacation and we go to Hawaii or New York or any other place that we like to visit, uh, you know, it's like you're always there. So you're never, uh, you never have to be away from the markets uh, just because you're away from your desk. Uh, as long as you have a laptop, you can go anywhere. So it, it is a, a nice way to be able to in, uh, merge your personal and work life together in a way that I think is balanced and healthy. So, but I hope once my kids do go into college, then I'll be able to catch up with Chris and start traveling around the world. How many hours do you spend per day trading? Uh, as many, mostly as many as I'm, um, most of the time I'd say as many as I'm awake. Uh, it's just something that I do naturally, uh, unless I'm doing something else, you know. So I, I just, uh, I put in the time I need to, which is, you know, almost, uh, whatever I can, whatever I feel like, which is usually, I'm going to say, 10 to 12 hours a day at least, maybe more. So 
But again, Etienne, it's not, I don't really think of it as in putting in uh, work hours. It's just what I'm doing. I think. Chris, yeah, it's more like a fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just what you're Get doing. It. You know, I, I could mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, I might do some other things, you know, go out to the beach, go surfing, play golf, whatever. But in terms of how many hours I put into it, probably a lot. But I think it also requires, um, if you want to be successful, I definitely think you have to apply yourself. So I think for people who have to work a regular day job, uh, they're going to have to put in some time after their regular day job, but I would hope that they have enough passion about it uh, that they won't view it as putting in, you know, work hours. It's fun. It's like a hobby. So the one that you can make a lot of money at. What would be your uh, your advice for those out there who are trying to make it in trading, but that don't have the lifestyle they want right now? So they're trying to, to make some money, but they don't have what they want so far. Go ahead, Chris. You know, the way you frame that question, um, I would say, uh, first of all, that there's a cardinal rule: scared money never wins. So if they're if they're trading based on um, being very unsatisfied where they're at, and they're trying to make the money so that they can dig, dig themselves out of a hole, financial or otherwise, that's a really bad recipe because their emotions will be fully engaged, and they're more than likely to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Now, if it's a different situation where they're, um, it's just they, they would, let's say they, they enjoy their job, but they'd like the freedom, they'd like to quit, and they would like to just do, you know, trading full time. Um, and there's a lot of people like that. Uh, I mean, that's, there's, that's always been a common denominator in our business, uh, people wanting to quit their jobs so that they can just day trade from home or trade, position trade from home and whatnot. Um, then you really have to... Uh, First of all, uh, I would hope that you had a number of experience, uh, years of experience in your belt, that you know your emotions, the, the strengths and weaknesses of your of your trading personality, um, that you keep a journal, that you uh, are very diligent in burning high oil because there's no such thing as easy money. Uh, yeah, if you were happen to get lucky and trade in 1999, uh, the last quarter, the first quarter of 2000, yeah, I suppose that was an easy money period, but. Those people who made tons of money going into the, the March 2000 market top lost it all. And some, went, some not only went uh, broke, but they were in debt. Um, so there is no such thing as easy money. It doesn't exist. Uh, you have to have passion and dedication for this profession. Um, you know, they, there's a, a, a fable about, you know, the brain surgeon. If you, you wouldn't just, you know, pick a guy off the street to operate on your brain. Um, and, and, but, but yet trading, because the mechanics are so simple, you know, you just open an account and start trading. The mechanics are so simple, yet the uh, the challenge that lies therein, um, I would I would easily argue, is far more complex and challenging than brain surgery any day. And I can say that because I would say that's true definitely about nuclear physics. I have a PhD in nuclear physics from UC Berkeley. Um, I studied under Glenn Siebel Ward, a Nobel laureate. Um, yeah. It's, it's fascinating and challenging. Um, it's rocket science, or you know, it's what friends used to joke around with me as, you know, the rocket scientist. But I would say that trading uh, is a more challenging endeavor, ultimately, uh, because it, it engages every part of you. Um, it's not black and white like nuclear physics. It involves your emotions. It involves knowing who you are, your your trading psychology, your, your own personal strengths and weaknesses completely get amplified when you have money on the line. Now that does not happen in nuclear physics. You can you can you know be doing a, an experiment and, and your emotions are not going to be engaged to that level. You know, if the experiment fails, well you try again. Um, so there's a lot more at stake, I think, with when it comes to trading, and that arguably makes it one of the most challenging professions in the world. 
Therefore, hopefully, you have a dedicated passion if you're going to make that big kind of career change and you know want to become a, a, a professional trader from home. Um, and you know, reading reading uh, our first book, actually reading any of our books, but the first book I think is very telling in terms of the pitfalls uh, involved with um, setting up a trading account and going at it on your on your own. Um, there are some other books that are also excellent in terms of trading psychology. Uh, the Market Wizards series by Jack Schwager comes to mind. Uh, those are, you, know, you can go back to the very first one, uh, O'Neill, William O'Neill's interview in the first one. But they're all really good books because uh, Jack Schwager is quite gifted at uh, interviewing um, these, these traders that are phenomenal traders by their own right and getting them to really talk about um, their, their challenges as uh, you know, doing what they do. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm sure Gil has uh, plenty to expand on uh, this. There's so much I could more I could say. I mean, this is this that question right there in itself is is a one-hour interview. But uh, um, I'll turn it over to Gil. Yeah, I would say uh, people shouldn't expect too much right away. If you think about it from a practical standpoint, uh, I started with three thousand dollars back in 1991. And didn't really starting start to make any real serious money until a couple three years later. So it took me a good two to three years to acquire the skills to begin to become successful. And then in 1995, I think I had my first big year where I was up over 500%. So what I would say to most people is you have to be persistent and you have to expect that you're going to put some time in learning. So you don't want to be trading too big or or trying to be too aggressive, uh, and, and obviously not be, become too greedy and expect too much too fast. But it is going to take you some time. And then the real key to making the big money, and I made this point earlier, is that you simply want to be in position. You want to have your head in the game. You want to be involved in the game when we have another period like we did in the late 90s, where you can make a huge amount of money in the markets, uh, or any other period where, where we've had big leading stocks that you can, you know, jump on. And own and make a lot of money in. So that's really the key is, is being patient, allowing yourself some time to learn, and then making sure you're in the game when the big opportunity shows up. And finally, my, my biggest advice to anybody who wants to invest is that you must lose to win. And I, I keep a little piece of paper with the words on it, I must lose to win. And that is not being afraid to take losses because you're going to learn from the losses that you take if you take the time to study them. And we even have a whole chapter in our first book where we talk about falling forward, all the mistakes that we've made and what we've learned from them. Because you're going to make a lot of mistakes, and if you don't learn from them, from them then you've squandered an educational opportunity. So in those, that learning process is going to come from making mistakes. So you can't be afraid from making a mistake or two because hopefully it's the third or fourth trade you make that's going to be the big hitter, and you're not going to get there without going through the first two. But if you're not willing to make a mistake, you won't take the loss, and you'll sit there and get clobbered. And so that's a key, uh, to me, a key concept is that you must lose to win, and you should always be prepared to lose if your trading strategy says it's time to take a loss and get out of this so that we'll be able to live to fight another day. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting point. So how do you make sure that you learn from your mistakes? You have to study them. I mean, you go back, uh, and Chris and I do this all the time. This is something we learned from Bill O'Neill. When you make a lot of mistakes, and you know, like like I can tell you, in 2009, I made a big mistake of trying to be too short, too long. I, I had <clears throat> decided by March of 2009, I had decided that the whole financial system was going to collapse, and so I was shorting all these financials in these banks, and 
I got very short and I got hit very hard. <clears throat> and so it's, you know, the, the natural instinct for most people is when something like that happens to you, what do you want to do? You don't want to look at it again. You don't want to have to relive it. Uh, you don't want to have to go through that. You want to, don't want to have to look at it at all. You just want to throw it in a closet and never look at it again, right? And, and what you need to do is you need to go back and you have to go into it into big, uh, great detail and, and figure out exactly what you did wrong. And you might, you might have to relive a lot of the pain, but you rest assured that when you go through that process, you'll come out the other end not in a position where you won't do that again. And a lot of the, the methods I use today with respect to short selling, which I go into great detail in, uh, in the new book, uh, Short Selling with the O'Neill Disciples, uh, a lot of the new methods I, I use came uh, precisely from those mistakes. And in 2010, May of 2010, I was up uh, about 85% in one month uh, during the flash crash, uh, trading on the short side. And so in using these new rules and, and being able to uh, avoid the mistake I made in 2009, I came out, as Dr. Case says, what doesn't kill you uh, only makes you stronger. In this case, that turned out to be the case uh, for me, but only because I was able to look uh, openly and frankly at my big mistakes, you know. And it's not necessarily fun unless you keep in mind what the ultimate goal is, which is to correct those mistakes and turn them into useful lessons that will then result in big profits. Hmm. Love that. Love that. So how can people find you? Uh, you can go to selfishinvesting.com and just go there and you'll find us. And yeah, you, you have a lot of great books as well. That uh... I always just say Google, Google our names. Google my name, Chris Catcher or Gil Morales, and uh, you'll pull up lots of stuff, including our websites. And yeah, our and the, yeah, there's several books you have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. And you look us up on Amazon.com. So I mean, I've also been a cartoonist in the past. So you'll not only find my books on the market, but also my cartoon books. <laughs> oh, great. So I may be one of the I may be one of the few people on the planet who's written books about the stock market and also cartoons. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, but but that's where you can find us. So cool, cool, cool. So I just want to remind the listeners: additional free podcasts are going to be all on thisartistry.com. And we'll have everything there. All the books we talk about, all the books written by Gil and Chris, everything will be there. So you guys can check that out. And I want to ask you one last question, guys. Uh, we'll start by uh, by Chris. Okay. If you could give only one sentence of advice for new traders on how they can thrive in trading, what would that one sentence of advice be? Insane focus can move mountains um, because, you know, that means you're passionate, you know, and... Uh, If you have that insane focus, that means you will have discipline and you will uh, take small steps each day to become a more uh, polished trader um, and uh, hopefully increase your account size as well. And uh, then before you know it, when you look back, uh, you may have traveled a thousand miles. Cool. I love that. My one sentence would be the one that I gave you in my last answer, which is you must lose to win. So you must be ready and uh, willing to uh to take losses, so you know to lose, uh, because that will keep you in the game, uh, and you must uh, learn from your from your mistakes. So you must lose to win. So that's what I would say. That would be my single sentence. Cool, I love that. So thanks a lot, guys, for being on the Disaster Trade Podcast, and I'll see you guys pretty soon. Yeah, thanks, Etienne. 
Thanks for listening to the Desire to Trade podcast. To get all the information on this show, free articles, and unique resources, make sure to check out www.desiretotrade.com and subscribe. Please leave us a review and let us know what you thought about the show. It's time to become the best trader you can be. See you next time.